145 years ago this day, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a national day of fasting. I selected portions of that document and edited the text slightly to clarify its meaning only and also then to fit it for our consideration. I've cut out a good deal of the text, but I think this will help us. It is, wrote Lincoln, the duty of nations as well as of people individually to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. We Americans have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved for these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined into the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before God, to confess our sins, and to pray for forgiveness. This is a national proclamation. 1863. 110 years later, after Lincoln's proclamation, world-renowned psychologist Carl Menninger asked the question that many had been asking for a long time in a book entitled, What Became of Sin? In this book, Menninger exposes America's radical shift away from the concept of sin. And he is in the particular context of the 60s and the 70s there, but asking the broader question, I think, of America. What became of sin? It was a day when we talked about this publicly, when we took off from work and everyone fasted in prayer and confession. No one really thought that odd at all. Americans living in Abraham Lincoln's day were no less sinful than Americans living today. But our awareness of sin, our understanding of what sin is, and our aversion to addressing sin distinguishes us from earlier generations. Greasing the skids are the likes of Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, who was a young boy at the time of Lincoln's proclamation in Austria. He was living in Austria. But Freud classified guilt as an irrational feeling essentially denying the very reality of sin. Christian leaders lapped up the basic worldview of psychotherapists like Freud and retrofitted it to satisfy the itching ears of vast Christian audiences who are growing increasingly disappointed with hearing about their errors and their wrongdoing. Speaking for this new generation was California pastor Robert Schuller, who produced the book Self-esteem, the New Reformation, I believe it was in 1982, in which he defines sin as any human condition or act that robs God of glory. It's working for me. It's a pretty good definition. This is his words. Any human condition or act that robs God of glory, but he continues, by stripping one of his children of their right to divine dignity. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Page 14. On page 98, Schuler is not saying merely that it is sin to rob someone of self-esteem. He believes, quote, the core of sin is lack of self-esteem. On that same page, he says, the most serious sin is one that causes me to say... I am unworthy. 
That is the most serious sin. And we can hear Menninger saying, what became of sin? Now, a recent poll conducted by Ellison Research of Phoenix claims that 87% of Americans believe in the concept of sin. Some seem to speak as if nobody believes it's, it's real anymore. This would indicate that many people do believe in sin. But as a culture, we are fast losing our capacity to define what sin is. And with that, all sense of urgency to do anything about it. This environment is really toxic. Not only for the lost, but for those of us who are true followers of Jesus Christ. We are breathing at all times the toxic air of this kind of culture. A culture that does not want to deal with sin, does not know how to define it. And in this culture, we need the oxygen mask of God's Word. And we need time under the oxygen tent of Christ's church in order to develop a clear understanding of sin and a courageous resolve to resist it in our daily lives. And to this end, we start a series of sermons today intended to help us respond biblically to the reality of sin in our fallen world. In this endeavor, we must start with an understanding of what sin is, which demands a firm grasp of sin's origins, which starts with an understanding of angels. We look then first to the entrance of sin into the cosmos. Angelic beings were likely created in God's initial act of creation. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I'd like you to turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 as we consider that God in the initial act of creation creates the basic elements of heaven and earth, of the universe. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, there's an interesting phrase in chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul writing to the Ephesian believers says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now that phrase, the heavenly places, we could translate the one Greek word, the heavenlies. Paul, in writing about the believer's spiritual battle against demonic beings, describes their realm as operating in the heavenlies. If we would link that back to Genesis 1 and verse 1, it would indicate that God created the heavens, and likely including in that the angelic realm that operates in the heavenlies. There was no heavenly realm as such prior to creation. There was just God but in that creation, we would surmise, we would infer from the text that these angelic beings were created in that initial act. Job 38 supports this. Verses 6 and 7, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who laid its cornerstone? When all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, it's reading a lot into that to say the angels were created immediately, but it does certainly support the idea with the laying of the foundation of the earth with the cornerstone when you set the cornerstone you lay the foundation the building's not done you've just started but he says that at the laying of this foundation if we take it to be that it could be just used as a figure of speech but if we take it to be something of an initial act of creation he says that the sons of god were there singing now, the sons of God in the Old Testament, not always, but often refers to angelic hosts. And that seems to fit the context of Job 38. As we go back to the creative account in Genesis 1 and verse 31, we find that everything was good in God's estimation. And in Genesis 2 and verse 1, very clearly that all creation ceases at that point after the sixth creative day. So nothing but God exists prior to creation. The angels are created by day six of the creative week. And they are created in moral purity. Looking at that initial creation of the angels, we look secondly to Satan, one of these angels who leads a rebellion against God. 
As we come to Genesis chapter 3, at some undisclosed period of time after the creative week, Satan has already fallen into sin and possesses the serpent to tempt Eve with the forbidden fruit. Genesis provides no record of Satan's rebellion, leaving Satan purposefully, I think, in the background so that we encounter the temptation in the text of Genesis, much like Adam and Eve encounter the temptation, with no knowledge of Satan's fall. They're unconscious of his rebellion. The Bible never declares precisely when Satan fell, but it does declare that he did, and that he took a host of angels with him who are consigned to destruction by God. If you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, we have a clear statement on this here. 2 Peter 2, 4, if somebody asked you, are there demons, or is that a conclusion that you just draw from the evidence of matters? I think we would say no, there is biblical indication that there is a demonic realm that has rebelled against God and is consigned in their rebellion. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, and he continues on. But we find here that he did not spare angels who sinned. Now when it says that he casts them into hell, we're not to get the idea here, and the text would indicate this as well as the theology of it, but we're not to get the idea here that they are in jail, that they can't get out, that they're assigned to hell and have no influence. I think the indication, even in this text, would be found in verse 9, where it says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Do unrighteous people who are kept for the day of judgment have any influence in this world? They have a lot of influence in this world. The point is that they are consigned to this destiny. And so that is how I think we would read verse 4. There are these angels that fell into sin that are consigned to the destiny of destruction. That doesn't mean they have no influence here. They are chained to hell, but if you want to press the analogy a bit, the chain's fairly long. And it extends to this earth, and they're able to move around and to have influence here, although their final end has already been determined. Jude 6 could be added to this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Think of that phrase, they didn't stay within their own position of authority, that is, they were in rebellion against God's authority. They left their proper dwelling... These he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That is, they are already condemned, although they have great influence. And we have many indicators in Scripture, and I think we could all add some passages of text that indicate they continue on in their influence. But, do we have any light on Satan's fall? Do we have any light on Satan's rebellion against God? I think we do in Ezekiel chapter 28. And I will say at the outset that there are some who would interpret this passage differently. But I think for good reason there has been a long-standing belief about this text that it is describing Satan's rebellion. Now part of the issue here is that we are in the context of another day. In Ezekiel chapters 4 through 24, Ezekiel pronounces God's pending judgment upon Judah, who has sinned with a high hand against God. Is it just God's people that are judged? In chapter 25 through 33, God reveals that he will also judge the nations surrounding Israel for their sins. And key among those nations is the city-state of Tyre, situated on the Mediterranean coast in northwest Palestine. Now, Tyre has become a dominant maritime leader with a well-oiled reputation for brazen pride and oppressive control over trade in the region. So in chapter 27, Ezekiel prophesies the destruction of the city-state, and in chapter 28, narrows in here on the king of Tyre, Ephbaal III, and there is a prophecy here of his pending judgment and doom. Now what becomes evident as we work our way through Ezekiel 28, and we won't look at the whole passage, but as you work your way through, it becomes evident 
that the language that's used here to describe Tyre's king is so hyperbolic as to defy reason. Indeed, as you stare into the face of the Tyrian king, as you hear Ezekiel's words of condemnation, you begin to see that face morph into the face of Satan himself. You see the face of Satan behind the king, who moves the king. We might find some indication of this in the text itself at 28 and verse 2. There is a reference here, this is all is addressed to the prince of Tyre. But as we come to verse 12, notice what happens. In verse 12, moreover the word of the Lord came to me. There's a repetition of that phrase here. And now it is addressed to the king of the king of Tyre. Now, admittedly, prince and king can be used interchangeably. But there might be a tip-off here in the prophecy that this king is a little bit distinctive from the prince, Ethbaal III. It doesn't demand a different referent, but it allows for it. And the king of Tyre appears to be then, as we work our way through this, like the snake in the Garden of Eden. He serves as Satan's puppet, such that when God curses the king of Tyre, he is striking ultimately at Satan. We remember the curse on the serpent was a real curse on the real serpent. But clearly in Genesis chapter 3, it was a curse on more than just the snake. It was a curse on Satan who used the snake. And I think we have exactly the same idea here. There is a curse on this king, but there's a curse on the power behind the king who is Satan himself and an evidence of Satan's fall. One of the ways, if you're with me in this interpretation, is the way that this king is described. It's too much for me to go with. To say that it's all hyperbole, exaggeration about this one king. There are statements here that just seem too much for this. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The stones are listed. There's differences of opinion on which stone is which with the Hebrew word, but basically all there. And it speaks of this amazing, spectacular covering crafted in gold with the settings and engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared for you. The day that you were created. Now this could speak in hyperbole of this king who's being fitted with these tremendous robes on the day of his birth. But you'll also notice here, kind of an interesting way to talk about his origins, isn't it? We typically talk about the birth of a king, not about the day on which he was created. So we're being tipped off here again to the fact that there's something unique, I think, going on here. On the day that you were created, this covering was prepared for you, this adornment. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. The guardian cherub, remember those are the the two angels, the plural is cherubim. We sang of that in the first two songs we sung today, didn't we? The cherubim and the seraphim are two types of angels two cherubim, a cherub and a cherub, were on the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this. We just looked at it last week. They were cherubim. This one is being referred to as a cherub. Ezekiel chapter 10 pictures God as enthroned above cherubim who serve as His throne chariot. That is, as God moves, these angels move and the presence of God hovers over these angels. So if we would look even at the prophecy of Ezekiel as to what cherubim do, they are in the presence of God. And this very word is used. In fact, the cherubim are a very significant part of the book of Ezekiel. And they are in the presence of God and they indicate a relationship of closeness to God, these angelic beings. Here we read that you were an anointed guardian cherub. You were blameless indeed. I mean, if we say it's pretty hard to think of a king as an angel, particularly a pagan king, I realize the wording can be used in some context. 
But look at the next idea. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were again created. Indicating moral maturity at a very high level, if not moral perfection. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. But what happened? I think again the speaking of Satan who was in the Garden of Eden, who was a cherub, who was full of wisdom and beauty, who was blameless in all of his ways because he was created by God such. It then says in verse 15, but unrighteousness was found in you. So something dramatic happens. It's not a very theologically correct way to talk about a pagan that they were blameless and good and pure and right and full of wisdom and beauty, and then something happened along the way, as if born sinless. And then it was with an act of sin that this person became a sinner. It seems again to speak of one created in moral perfection, but something took place. Verse 16, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Probably picturing the holiness, or at least the presence of God thrown out from his midst. Your heart was proud because of your beauty, verse 17. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. And here, perhaps at that idea, the feasting of the eyes of kings upon the destruction of this one, we begin to meld back into the king of Tyre, specifically. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. References to Satan's humiliation on earth return directly to the fall of Tyre's king, but are anticipatory of Satan's eventual demise. And these very concepts of falling before the kings of the earth are fitted to the end of the story in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. You could note that there, chapters 12, chapters 20. But let's stop for a moment. I'm going to take us through another text in just a bit. Bear with me, but let's stop at this moment and consider. Do you get this? Do you see this? Is this part of your worldview? Satan was created as a sinless being with moral freedom. Satan is not an evil God with whom God is locked in cosmic battle. New believers, children particularly, grab a hold of this thought. Satan is not an alternative God, a competing God out there who does the bad and runs the bad against God who runs the good. Satan was created good. Satan yielded to pride, choosing to magnify himself over God. Evil is not an impersonal force. It's not a principle that is inherent in the universe. At its core, evil is an immoral response or disposition to God that profanes His glory. It is an immoral response or disposition toward God that profanes His glory. So Satan is committed then to spreading this cause, spreading his immoral influence by recruiting other moral agents to rebel against God. So looking at the genesis of sin in the cosmos through the fall of Satan who gathers other angels who fall with him and are now consigned to judgment eternally but who continue to influence this world, we turn then secondly and must consider the genesis of sin in human history. Now we're very familiar with Genesis 3, but I invite you back there as we come back to our root statement over and again in these early chapters of Genesis But let's think through them, not simply verse by verse through the text, but thinking in the context of the consideration before us. And thinking in the context of Satan's fall into sin. Genesis 3, 
In verse 1, we enter upon the genesis of sin in human history, and we must be very familiar with this text. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan has rebelled against God and drawn a horde of angels with him into rebellion, and Adam and Eve know nothing about this. For their part, they inhabit a pristine world. They're creatures made in the image of God with moral freedom to choose to honor God. Their relationship with God and one another is flawless, and they live in paradise. They also have a specific word from God. But as Satan inhabits this snake, he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now this hails back to chapter 2 and verse 15, where the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. God uses the phrase, the Hebrew phrase, dying you will die. You will really die. Assuredly. Now back to Satan. Unbeknownst, obviously, to Adam and Eve, he has possessed this snake and employs its characteristic subtlety and deceptiveness to cast doubt upon God's Word. Has God actually said? The Hebrew indicates a degree of incredulity. Seriously. God said that? Surely not. He wouldn't say that. Has God said, in matching this doubt with a distortion, he continues forward, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is this what God has said? What are we witnessing here? We're witnessing the first sinful creature in history initiating the first temptation in the history of mankind. And where does Satan start? with an attack on the integrity and the trustworthiness of God's Word. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, every word God speaks reflects the glory and the moral beauty of His name. Sin is any move or disposition that separates the creature from the revealed glory of the Creator, which expresses itself predominantly in His Word. Satan casts doubt upon that, and he distorts that word. Did God say you can't eat any fruit from any tree? Eve corrects the serpent quickly. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And Satan has very skillfully now brought all attention not to all of the trees of the garden that can be consumed, but to this one tree. This one tree that is off limits. And it is at this point that he not only casts doubt upon God's word and distorts it, but actually denies what God has said. Verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Using God's words, Dying you will die, God said. Satan responds, not dying you will die. You will absolutely not die. For, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here he deceives the woman. She doesn't understand what he's saying. He does. But it's deceptive. Satan denounces God's motive in issuing the restriction on eating from the tree in the center of the garden. I got a little secret to tell you. You don't understand this, Eve. God's law is not motivated by love. It's not motivated by wisdom even. It's motivated by jealous self-promotion. He forbids you eating the fruit of that tree because he does not want what is best for you. He enjoys the rarefied air of the Creator. You can enter into the same realm. Just don't listen to his word. What is more, there will be wonderful consequences if you do disobey him. 
if you will exercise self-autonomous freedom, if you will determine for yourself what is right and what is evil. And the wonderful truth is you will become like God. He's in the business of determining what's right and wrong. But that's his deal for him. That's not his deal for you. You can determine what's right and wrong for yourself. And you can be just like God. That's the secret. He doesn't want to tell you. So Eve is presented with the decision to determine for herself what is true, to determine for herself what is right, indeed to exercise self-autonomous freedom in opposition to God's will. And that desire begins to germinate in her heart. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Notice the threefold appeal again. It is good for food. The fruit appeals to her palate. She salivates with desire. There's the lust of the flesh that is here. It is a delight to the eyes. The fruit appeals to her eyes. She longs to reach out and touch it and to have it and possess it. The lust of the eyes. It is desired to make one wise. Here is intellectual pride that asserts self-autonomous desire. It is the pride of life. Eve permitted this desire for what God had forbidden to germinate. Rather than trusting his love, trusting his wisdom, she turned to trust herself in pride to promote herself above God just as Satan had done. He's putting the temptation right before her that he had caved into. And when the lust germinates, it springs into action and she breaks the law of God. And giving that fruit to her husband, he with her eats the fruit. Now I want to bring out through this three specific areas of response I'd like us to consider in light of this biblical foundation of what sin is. First of all, we must embrace the right definition of sin. This is crucial we're being challenged at this point over and over again in our world. Schuler's definition, is it right? His definition, I think, is so wrong, it is itself sinful. His definition of sin is a direct assault on God's Word. He takes all that God says about sin, turns it on its head. No earnest Bible student could possibly adopt such a definition. But, more honorable souls have suggested that the essence of sin is sensuality. Define it. How do you go about defining it in your life indeed? When you think about sin, how do you perceive it? Are there some things that are sins for others but not for you? Do you self-define what sin is? Do you perhaps think of it as sensuality? We need to think through this. Now, sensuality is certainly the essence of many sins, such as illicit sex or gluttony or laziness. But sensuality does not address Adam and Eve's pride or desire for wisdom. Eve was tempted by more than just the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. She was jealous of God's power. She was jealous of God's authority. She wanted something more for herself. There was a dissatisfaction that was there that I don't think we can really label purely sensuality. There is sensuality in this, but I don't think it's the essence of it all. She grasped for more than simple physical pleasure. Sensate pleasure. Others have come in at this point and suggested that falls a bit short, and so we should see sin as essentially selfishness. Self-promotion. Again, this strikes at the heart of much sin, undoubtedly. But I worry at this point because we have to be clear here, is all self-interest wrong? If sin is at its core all self-centeredness, I think we run into the problem in certain places of Scripture where selfishness is wrong usually because we're corrupt, but is all self-interest evil? Let's play this out with Adam. 
But of Adam standing there, watching his wife go through this, I think is the point of the text. But she takes the fruit and eats, and then she presents the fruit to him, and he is faced with a decision. Would it be selfishness for him to say, I don't want to eat that fruit. I want to live. You see, in one sense, there's self-interest there, isn't there? Would he say, well, listen, Eve, you've fallen into sin. You now are subject to death. The only selfless thing for me to do is join you. Would he be right in that? I think in this case, this is a place where self-interest could be purified and right to say, I want to live. I want to obey what God has said. He joins with her rebellion. You could argue, in one sense, had he had a greater form of self-interest, he would have said no, and would have chosen life. Further, selfishness does not really account very well for certain forms of idolatry. And I don't make this up, this is real. There's a mother, a pagan mother in some place, an animist in some place, who, and many have, given birth to a child taken that child and walked out to the river and dropped the baby in the river to drown and to dedicate it to some god or some force. With tears streaming down her face as her mother's heart is wrenched open, she does this out of devotion. Not selfishness, but devotion to this god or demon or spirit. You could say she's acting selfishly. She believes there's a greater benefit in it for her. But I don't like putting that label over this mother dropping her baby in the stream. Selfishness doesn't seem to work too well. I think there's something else going on here. I think what it is at its heart, and this is how I would define the essence of sin, it's idolatrous lawlessness. Sin is any act, attitude, or disposition fueled by the love of something other than God. See, I think that's what motivates this woman to kill her child. There's a love for something other than God. And it is evidenced by a failure to conform to the moral law of God which reflects His nature. God speaks His law into this world that we would conform to His nature and when we disobey that law, we disobey Him. We disobey because we have some greater love. Millard Erickson has a lengthier definition, but he boils it down to this, and I think it catches the very essence of it all when he says that sin is simply the failure to let God be God. And when you get to every sin, I think it all fits into that. In this moment, I will not let God be God. I will be God. I will act in my own self-interest. I will act centrally. Whatever it is, I won't let God be God idolatrous lawlessness. I will break His Word because I believe it is better. 1 John 3, 4 indicates we're on the right track here when it says that sin is lawlessness. And I think we get to the essence of it even with Jesus' statement as He seeks to epitomize the law when He says you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the purpose of the law of God and we don't do this. We don't love God. At the heart of it all is a love for something other than God. So let's define it properly. We must define sin properly. Let's define it as idolatrous lawlessness. Second line of thought, by way of application, we must recognize that every temptation to sin is an assault against God's law. Every temptation is an assault against God's Word. Now that comes in a lot of different ways. It comes often in the lie. I will be better off if I disregard God's Word. I'll I'll do better. You can fill this into innumerable sins and do the application work. But just to think about when a child disobeys their parents, they are saying, I'm going to do better by going my way and not listening to what God's Word says. I'll do better. We cheat on our income taxes. Government's got enough. I don't like what they're doing with it. So I'm going to cheat, I'm going to cut this corner, and I'm going to do better if I violate God's law and do not render to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
When we give into sexual temptation, there is always the lie in it. There is a pleasure here that's worth it. I'll be better off. This joy for this moment is more important than what God has said. When we get angry or we become bitter, we allow bitterness to poison our spirit, we in some sense feel that we're better off. I'm better off being eaten up by hatred for that person than by letting it go. Turning it over to God. or God forbid forgiving them. We think differently than what God has said. When it comes to gossip, we just set God's word aside and we use our tongues to tear down other people because we think we're going to be better off. Eve, you've got to get this. God just doesn't want the best for you. And really at the heart of all of our temptations is this very lie. I'm going to be better off. But it comes in other ways. It comes sometimes just in the form of ignorance or at least in the sense of doubt. We really don't know what God has said. Maybe it's willful ignorance, but we're just really not aware of what His teaching, what the Word of God is saying, or we doubt that it could possibly be true. And I think there's so much evidence of this, but in this research that Ellison Research has done concerning Americans' view of sin, I, I see this just rising to the surface. There's one indication. 81% of Americans believe adultery is sin. 45% believe that sex before marriage is sin. Who's defining what sin is? I mean, it ought to be at least 81 and 81. If we're listening to what God has said, and we know what His Word is teaching, but 81% it's wrong to commit adultery, but 45% it's wrong to have sex before marriage. Who's speaking? Whose law are we listening to? We're listening to what we believe. And we may indeed be listening to conscience, which God has placed there, but it's not complete. And added to that, 52% believe homosexual activity is sin which means 48% don't, which means there's a sizable percentage of people who believe in sin and apparently have never read Romans 1, are ignorant of it, ignore Romans 1, or in some way just say God's wrong. We're defining for ourselves what sin is. 41% in this survey said that it's sin to get drunk. 41%. I thought it was amazing. Roman Catholics, only 28% which means 7 out of 10 Roman Catholics who see the Bible as authoritative word from God have either never read Ephesians 5.18, which says, about as simply as you can hear it, do not get drunk. Now, I don't mean to pick at one group, but here's 7 out of 10 people perhaps within these surveys, they're not perfect, they're not the mind of God, but they're indicating 7 out of 10 know that the Bible's authority, and it says pointedly, do not get drunk. Indeed says in 1 Corinthians 6 that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, and 7 out of 10 think it's just fine. It's not even classified as a sin. Where are we getting our information? Many times ignorance keeps us in the dark on the sin that we're committing. But let's remember, it's always willful ignorance. We must want to know the mind of God. It comes in other directions too. It can come through pride. The desire for what I want outweighs any interest I might have to magnify God. We must press on, but the answer is we need to know God's Word. And we need to honor it. We need to know what God thinks. And we'll talk, by His grace, more on that in the future. But one final line of application We must love and fear God with all our hearts in order to overcome sin. We must love and fear God with all of our hearts in order to overcome sin. Now this brings us back, maybe not so much just from these texts, but this brings together the entire service this morning. Where did we start in our singing? What were we singing about? We're singing about the holiness and the greatness and the majesty of God. There's a reason why we do that in the context of a service and a sermon that we know is going to deal with the issue of sin. Because when our view of self is elevated, our view of God is depressed, and our temptation to disregard God's law is encouraged. Why obey a God you don't revere? 
But when our view of God is elevated, His Word becomes increasingly precious to us, and we pursue the joy of walking in obedience to His law, which reflects the beauty and the joy of His nature. The higher God is lifted up, the more we want to live in line with His Word, because we know that it is our life. Bring on the restrictions, said David, remember the psalmist, I love your law. Now, God's law is not all restriction by any means, but many times it is. But we say, bring on the restrictions when we come to trust the heart of our Father. We know that every restriction is His love and His grace and His mercy to us. And we find it almost impossible. In fact, sometimes it is impossible. We find ourselves weak. We find ourselves incapable of obeying His law, but we need to love it. Because we need to love Him and need to realize who He is and to elevate His glory and His majesty so that as we see Him as high and lifted up, we know that His Word is pure and good and right and we want to keep it. And so we go to the Word pleading that God would show us His heart. Tell me your law. It is your life, God said to the Israelites. It is my delight, the psalmist say. And may that be our cry. This Word is our life. It's our light. It's our hope, and we cling to it. Professor William Long says this of our culture, and he's bemoaning this, but he says sin is no longer a topic that is preached on or taught. Well, we'll beg to differ as a church, won't we? It is, but you know what he means. It doesn't attract members to congregations, he says, and it doesn't keep them there. It flies pretty directly in the face of the upbeat message that we must inculcate in the young in order to keep the economic engine of America going. In other words, you can't say negative things like deal with your sin or people aren't going to come to church and you're not going to have money and grow and develop. And it's the same thing true in business. I mean, how many commercials have you seen recently or heard recently that are talking about your sinfulness? The only thing we get from a commercial standpoint in this world is you're just about the most wonderful thing on the planet. Start treating yourself that way. Line our pockets so we can treat ourselves that way. I mean, that's the whole deal, isn't it? Who's talking about sin and why on earth bother? Listen, there may be, if you press with me just a bit further, there may be someone among us here today. There may be several. You do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as the one who has rescued you from sin. What does it matter? It matters because your sin, you must understand, completely cuts you off from the life of God. It alienates you from His person. It alienates you from the beauty that He desires for your life. In fact, it sets you apart from His holiness and subjects you to His judgment. It destines you to eternal separation and judgment under the wrath of God. That's what it matters. And it removes you from the source of your soul's deepest joy. Your sin is the roadblock in your life. It's the emptiness that won't let you go. It's that uneasy conscience that you've got to take to bed with you every night. So who do you listen to? It doesn't matter. I define it my own way. Sin's not rational anyway. The whole idea is just ridiculous. I know I'm a little weak and I get guilty now and then, but... Is that where you're going to go? Are you going to listen to Robert Schuller, who says the core of sin is a lack of self-esteem? The most serious sin is one that causes me to say I am unworthy? He goes on to say, For once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Jesus Christ. If you can't see yourself as worthy of Jesus, you'll never be ready to receive Him. Let me tell you, that is exactly wrong. That is exactly wrong. What we must see is that we are entirely unworthy. When I see myself as an unworthy sinner because I have broken the law of God, I then open myself up to perceive the grace of God in Christ. I can understand then 
That it is His decision, His act of grace and mercy to meet me in my sinfulness and to grant to me that forgiveness and that hope. Now I can sing. Who wants to get together and sing about how wonderful they are? But when I can come with God's people to sing about how wonderful God is, there's something there that is real. So for believers, we can rejoice today in sins forgiven. Do we run away from the topic of sin? We don't need to run away from it. Because it is in discussing sin and knowing what it is and understanding it as the lawlessness that is so natural to us, now made unnatural in Christ. It is that sin that just reminds us of the grace and the goodness of God. And we come not to see how worthy we are, but how worthy He is. And then we can worship. And then we can go off into this world and proclaim a message of forgiveness. Not skirting the issue of sin, but dealing with it. Perhaps it's because I bury people that I like to stay on the topic of sin. Because there's a day coming when we're done. When our journey's over, And it's finished. And if you've spent your whole life ignoring death, you're not ready to die. If you've spent your whole life ignoring sin, you're not ready to die. But I know at my funeral, and I know at the funeral of everyone who has walked with Christ, there will be the statement that there is buried a sinner. But what joy there will be to say, there is a sinner that was saved by the grace of an almighty God. We're not afraid to face sin. We're not afraid to face death. Because Jesus dealt the final blow to death and sin. Do you want to enter into his presence singing your own praises for how worthy you are? Or do you want to enter into His presence and say, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace to this unworthy sinner. And through all eternity, sing that song. What joys await us. Now, let's run out of here and go off and sin that grace may abound, right? How stupid. We want to run off into this world and say, God, you saved me from it. Let's live to his glory and honor. Father, we are awed by your grace as we see it in light of our sin. And we want to see more of it and understand it better. And as we've labored on a topic that we're aware of, I pray, God, that we would deepen in it and that you would help us under this oxygen tent to breathe in the pure air, to be aware of our sin, but thereby to rejoice in your forgiveness and grace. And we do so with gladness of heart. May you be our vision. May we long to see you in fuller terms and to grow in the likeness of our Savior as we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.